I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. One hundred years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. One hundred years later, The Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. And so we've come here today to dramatize a shameful condition. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. They were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the Bank of Justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. Yeah.
have also come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice a reality for all of God's children. It would be fatal for the nation to overlook the urgency of the moment. This sweltering summit of the Negro's legitimate discontent will not pass until that is an invigorating autumn of freedom and equality. 1963 is not an end, but a beginning. Those who hope that the Negro needed to blow off steam and will now be content will have a rude awakening if the nation returns to business as usual. There will be neither rest nor tranquility in America until the Negro has granted his citizenship rights. The whirlwinds of revolt will continue to shake the foundations of our nation until the bright day of justice emerges. But that is something that I must say to my people who stand on the warm threshold which leads into the palace of justice. In the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. We must fail to conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protests to degenerate into physical violence. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. The marvelous new militancy which has engulfed the Negro community must not lead us to a distrust of all white people, for many of our white brothers, as evidenced by their presence here today, have come to realize that their destiny is Make the pledge that we shall always 
march ahead. We cannot turn back. There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is a victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We can never be satisfied. As long as our body is heavy with the fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the city. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I'm not my unmindful that some of you have come here out of great trials and tribulations. Some of you have come fresh from narrow jail cells. Some of you have come from areas where your quest for freedom left you battered by the storms of persecution. Yes and staggered by the winds of police brutality. You have been the veterans of creative suffering. Continue to work with the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. Go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama. Go back to South Carolina. Go back to Georgia. Go back to Louisiana. Go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities, knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you today, my friend, so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow. I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, 
be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day right there in Alabama little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, and every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is a faith that I go back to the South with, with this faith. We will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day, this will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, my country tears of thee, sweet land of liberty of thee I sing, land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside, let freedom ring, and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom reign from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom reign from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom reign from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom reign from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom reign from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom reign from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last.
Good afternoon. My name is Joanne Mitchell, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to Princeton University's celebration of the life and legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. The members of the planning committee devote an enormous amount of time and energy to this event. Please join me in thanking Lauren Robinson Brown, chair of the committee, and all of the members of the King Day Planning Committee. Today we honor Dr. King's unwavering commitment to social justice and his inspired and inspiring leadership of a movement that transformed a nation. On December 10, 1964, Dr. King was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. In his acceptance speech, Dr. King said, I accept this award today with an abiding faith in America and an audacious faith in the future of mankind. I refuse to accept the idea that the isness of man's present nature makes him morally incapable of reaching up to the eternal oughtness that forever confronts him. If each of us worked to create a world that Dr. King described as one in which the beauty of genuine brotherhood and peace is more precious than diamonds or silver or gold, that would be a fitting commemoration of Dr. King's 75th birthday. On the eve of his death, Dr. King said, we must rise up with greater readiness, stand up with greater determination, and move on in these powerful days of challenge because we have the opportunity to make America a better nation. It falls to us as keepers of the dream to make Dr. King's vision of a beloved community a reality. Now, to start our program, I'd like to introduce to you the Princeton University Gospel Ensemble. They were revitalized in 1983, and they've come back stronger than ever. Princeton University's Gospel Ensemble.
Thank you, Gospel Ensemble, for that wonderful selection. At this time, it gives me great pleasure to welcome to the podium President Princeton's 19th President, Shirley M. Tillman. President Tillman is an internationally renowned research scientist and teacher who is and has been a national leader in the quest for equity in the academy. As president, she now lends her extraordinary talents and seemingly boundless energy to leading Princeton as we seek to realize our commitment to service to the nation and the world. It is a great pleasure to introduce a leader with a strong and abiding commitment to social and economic justice, President Shirley Tillman. Good Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. It's a great pleasure to welcome all of you to Princeton University, but most particularly the students and their parents who are here to help us celebrate the life and the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Had he lived, Dr. King would have been 75 years old today. Imagine what our world would be like today if we had had the benefit of his leadership and his vision for the last 35 years. Yet even in death, his voice continues to resound across this nation and indeed the world and to inspire a new generation of citizens committed to equality for all. As our own professor Cornell West has said, Dr. King has affected so many worldwide because he embraced the Socratic, the prophetic, and the democratic. Doesn't that sound like Professor West? <laughs> professor West explains that Dr. King was Socratic in that he believed that the unexamined life is not worth living. He was prophetic in that he had a vision for a better and more compassionate world. And he was democratic in that he was dedicated to uplifting all people. While many of us remember Dr. King as the African-American preacher who issued the clarion call for the civil rights movement, Dr. King was also a humanitarian interested in many global issues. Nowhere is his prophetic ability clearer than in his 1967 book, The Trumpet of Conscience, where Dr. King grappled with the technological revolution and warned, nothing in our glittering technology can raise men to new heights because material growth has been made an end in itself and in the absence of moral purpose, man himself becomes smaller as the works of man become bigger. Indeed, 36 years after he wrote those words, debates about the reconciliation of scientific advancement with humanistic values have come to the fore in areas such as information technology, where we are concerned about our own privacy, in medicine, where we are concerned with what it means to be human, and in national security, 
where we are concerned about how to protect the nation and human freedom at the same time. It is amazing to me to realize just how many topics Dr. King addressed and influenced in his all-too-brief lifetime. He stands as a role model and a testament of hope, reminding us just how much one person can truly achieve. This spirit of making a difference, no matter how small, was captured by the 40 students whom we're honoring in this program and by the hundreds of others who participated in this year's Martin Luther King contest. Your essays, your videos, and your posters commemorating the 40th anniversary of Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech certainly, along with the Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, surely one of the most influential and eloquent addresses in American history, captured the depth of your understanding about Dr. King's legacy and your own desires to see his dream finally become a reality. I hope that you approach everything you do with the same spirit and commitment that you have displayed in all of these projects. To all of you, welcome and congratulations. I also want to thank our students and staff for the wonderful music we are enjoying today, and Professor of English Valerie Smith for agreeing to deliver the keynote address. Professor Smith, as you will soon hear, is a distinguished teacher and scholar who is leading Princeton's very exciting program in African-American studies. Finally, I too want to thank the Martin Luther King Day committee members, staff, and all of the outstanding judges who helped us with today's events. This program is just one of the many ways the university welcomes community involvement and I hope to see many of you in the audience often on our campus and about town. With that, I am told the ensemble is ready to deliver another treat. Please welcome the Princeton University Gospel Ensemble, which will be featuring Kenny Grayson, the youngest in spirit in the group that uh, is to my right, and the foreman of our electrical shop.
and I sing Because I'm a free Ensemble. That was wonderful. I'm Lauren Robinson Brown, and it is my privilege to serve as the MLK Committee Convener. After more than a decade of leadership in this role from my predecessor, University Vice President and Secretary Bob Durkee. Bob, thank you for your dedication to this event. And I can't see you, but I know you're out there. So there you are. Okay. <laughs> Those of you who have attended this event year after year know that Bob is a great storyteller and has watched many of our students participate year after year and grow through the contest. Since those are shoes I cannot fill, I will merely convey on behalf of all of the judges that we are extremely proud of the work of these students and we look forward to their continued participation in this annual event. This year, for the first time, we expanded the contest to include a video category, 
And it was a rather late addition. Um, a lot of students didn't know about it, so we're making a big deal and hoping that we'll get even more participation in this new technology in the future. The committee also agreed to add one more exciting award starting in the year 2005. We were so inspired by the 900 plus fourth through 12th graders who participated in the contest this year that we wanted to create an MLK recognition for campus participants. So with President Tillman's blessings, next year we will present the MLK Journey Award to the one member of the faculty, staff, or student body who has been nominated as the person who most represents the continued journey started by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. We will have nomination forms and more details soon about the Journey Award and also about next year's contest, so make sure you check our website now and then. And now on to this year's presentation. The poster, essay, and video contests started in 2003 were planned to commemorate the 40th anniversary of the March on Washington, where King delivered one of the world's most famous orations, I Have a Dream. We asked our students to depict or write their own speeches on any topic that would affect America today as deeply as the Reverend Dr. King's speech did in his day. Submissions covered the gamut from the environment to child abuse, and we've offered snippets of the essays in your program. The following students are here because they have distinguished themselves, and while we will call each name, we ask that you hold your applause until we have announced all of the winners in each category. I think the students are ready. The honorees in the poster, the poster contest are, first, Angela Bastian, grade six, Crockett Middle School, Hamilton, who is unable to attend. Syra Bayat, grade five, Stort Country Day School of Princeton. Kenneth Cousins, grade six, and Olivia Sage L., grade six, of Glenfield Middle School in Montclair, New Jersey. Robert Graham, grade five, Lore Elementary School in Ewing. Julia Vari, grade four of St. Anne's School in Lawrenceville. And Bailey Clapp, grade five, Holenbrook School in Reddington. And these are our honorable mentions. And now to our third, third prize honoree who will receive $50, and that's Nicholas Littlefield, grade five of Scion Elementary School in Hamilton. The second prize goes to Cameron, Giles, grade five of Stewart Country Day School in Princeton. And our first prize winner, well, actually we have a tie in this category and both students will receive $100. And they are Rachel Wachunas, grade five of Scion Elementary School in Hamilton and Sheba Arif, grade six of John Witherspoon School in Princeton. And now for your applause. We have packets for these students waiting for them, and we'll bring on the seventh and eighth grade honorees in the essay contest. Receiving honorable mention, again, all of our students were not able to attend today, but we're gonna recognize them. Kyle Babinwich of grade eight, the Ch uh, Chapin School in Princeton. 
Carolyn Linseth, grade eight of Stewart Country Day School in Princeton. Annie McDonald, grade eight, Stewart Country Day School in Princeton. Kristen Mangrum, grade eight, John Witherspoon School in Princeton. Melanie Mochowski, grade eight, the Reynolds Middle School in Trenton. Amala Narayan, grade seven, Crossroads South Middle School in Monmouth Junction. Shivani Ray, grade eight, Melvin Kreps Middle School in Heightstown. And those are our honorable mentions. The, the third prize awardee is Prerna Sinya, grade eight of Montgomery Middle School in Skillman. And second prize is Christopher Latower, grade eight of the Chapin School in Princeton. And in first prize, we have Ariana Vera, grade eight of Stewart Country Day School in Princeton. Moving on to our ninth and 10th grade winners in the essay contest, the honorable mentions are Sarah Akbar, grade 10 of Stewart Country Day School, who couldn't be here today. Elizabeth Kenselosi, grade nine, Stewart Country Day School in Princeton. Simon Gordonoff, grade 10 of Heightstown, who couldn't be here today. Margaret Helmke, grade 10 of Villa Victoria Academy in Trenton. Raj Lala, of grade 10, Lawrenceville School in Lawrenceville, and Gina Lupica, grade 10, Villa Victoria Academy in Trenton. These are our honorable mentions. Our third prize winner is Anthony DeAmato, grade 10 of Blair Academy in Blairstown. And second prize goes to Stephanie Swites, who's unable to attend today, and she's at Villa Victoria. And we have another first prize tie, and they are Teresa Beyer, grade 10 of Villa Victoria Academy in Trenton, and Laura Brienza, grade 10, Stewart Country Day School in Princeton. Moving on to our 11th and 12th grade honorees in the essay contest, receiving honorable mention, Emily Franco, grade 11, Heightstown High School, Heightstown. Leslie Hart, grade 12, Stewart Country Day School in Princeton. And I have to mention that Leslie was a first prize winner last year and also won honorable mention previously. So she's a longtime participant in this contest. And I'm not sure if Jeanette Manning is here from grade 11, Stewart Country Day School, or Sophia Medina, grade 12 of Stewart Country Day, but they're also honorable mentions. Third prize. Third prize goes to Manisha Bhattachari. Ah, <laughs> I'll get it in there. Uh, of grade 11, West Windsor, Plainsboro South High School, and Manchina won an honorable mention in last year's contest as well. Our second prize honoree is Jessica Boston, grade 12 of West Windsor, West Windsor Plainsboro North High School, Plainsboro. And our first prize winner is Danielle Petrix, grade 11, Heightstown High School, Heightstown. Finally, 
We'd like to mention our video contest honorable mentions this year. And the video con contest covered 7th through 12th grade. They are Megan Delaya, grade 8 of Community Middle School in Plainsboro, and Peter Ma, grade 8 also of Community Middle School in Plainsboro. We're particularly pleased that our students represented uh, not only our communities surrounding Princeton and, of course, Princeton, but all over the state this year. And I do want to mention a few guests in the audience today who also represent our state. They are Congressman Rush Holt, <laughs> Mayor of Princeton Borough, Joe O'Neill, Bill Baroni, who's an assemblyman from the 14th District. And from the Township of Plainsboro, Michael T. Weaver, the Township Committee Member. We have many participants from the university, and I do want to mention our former president, Bob Goheen, who actually welcomed, welcomed Dr. King to campus. So President Goheen, thank you very much for participating. Let's have, let's have one more round of applause for all of our students this year. It's a great honor to introduce our keynote speaker for this afternoon, Professor Valerie Smith, the Woodrow Wilson Professor of Literature, Professor of English and African American Studies, and the Director of the Program in African American Studies at Princeton. Professor Smith earned her bachelor's degree at Bates College and her master's and PhD degrees from the University of Virginia. Professor Smith began her career in the academy at Princeton and was a member of its faculty until 1989 when she left for UCLA. During her sojourn on the West Coast, Professor Smith served as co-director of the Cultural Studies and the African Diaspora Project from 1996 to 2000 and was the director of the Interdepartmental Program in African American Studies from 1997 through 2000. Professor Smith is the author of numerous books and scholarly publications, including Not Just Race, Not Just Gender, Black Feminist Readings. She is currently engaged in groundbreaking work on cultural memory and is working on a book on narratives of race in the post-civil rights era. Professor Smith is revered by her students as a gifted teacher and a wonderful mentor. She is an exceptional leader who is just as comfortable organizing as she is joining. Professor Smith is a campus leader and a community builder who has earned our abiding respect and admiration. It is my great pleasure to introduce my friend and colleague, Professor Valerie Smith. Thank you, Joanne, for your generous introduction. Um, good afternoon, everyone. I'd like to thank you all for your presence here today. And I'd especially like to thank Bob Durkee, Lauren Robinson-Brown, and the entire planning committee for asking me to speak with you today. On December 10th, 1964, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. accepted the Nobel Prize for Peace. In the speech that he delivered on that occasion, 
he was careful to acknowledge that he accepted the award not on his own behalf, but in the name of all who made the civil rights movement and thus his leadership possible. From the depths of my heart, he said, I am aware that this prize is much more than an honor to me personally. Every time I take a flight, I am always mindful of the many people who make a successful journey possible, the known pilots and the unknown ground crew. So you honor the dedicated pilots of our struggle who have sat at the controls as the freedom movement soared into orbit. You honor the ground crew without whose labor and sacrifices the jet flights to freedom could never have left the earth. Most of these people, he continued, will never make the headlines, and their names will not appear in who's who. Yet the years have rolled past, and when the blazing light of truth is focused on this marvelous age in which we live, men and women will know and children will be taught that we have a finer land, a better people, a more noble civilization, because these humble children of God were willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. On February 9, 1968, Dr. King preached what we might consider to be his own eulogy from the pulpit of Ebenezer Baptist. Ebenezer is, of course, the prominent black church in Atlanta in which he grew up, the church which his father and grandfather had pastored and which Dr. King co-pastored with his father, the Reverend Martin Luther King, Sr. This sermon, entitled The Drum Major Instinct, was like so many of his sermons, his speeches and writings, at once reflective and prophetic. In it, Dr. King analyzes the human desire for greatness and recognition. He explores various manifestations of this compulsion, from the personal and insignificant to the national and cataclysmic. For from his perspective, the desire among individuals, and I quote, the desire to be important, to surpass others, to achieve distinction, that desire is linked, he said, to the struggle among nations, quoting again, engaged in a bitter, colossal contest for supremacy. As he puts it, nations are caught up with the drum major instinct. I must be first. I must be supreme. Our nation must rule the world. And I am sad to say, he continues, that the nation in which we live is the supreme culprit. And I'm going to continue to say it to America because I love this country too much to see the drift that it has taken. This sermon culminates in Dr. Dr. King's eloquent and heartbreaking reflection on how he would like to be remembered. He tells his congregants, if any of you are around when I have to meet my day, I don't want a long funeral. And if you get somebody to deliver the eulogy, tell them not to talk too long. Every now and then I wonder what I want them to say. Tell them not to mention that I have a Nobel Peace Prize. That isn't important. Tell them not to mention that I have three or four hundred other awards. That's not important. Tell them not to mention where I went to school. I'd like somebody to mention that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like for somebody to say that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. 
I want you to say that day that I tried to be right on the war question. And I want you to be able to say that day that I did try to feed the hungry. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try in my life to visit those who were in prison. I want you to say that I tried to love and serve humanity. If you want to say that I was a drum major, say that I was a drum major for justice. Say that I was a drum major for peace. I was a drum major for righteousness. And all of the other shallow things will not matter. Two months later, these words were broadcast at his funeral. Each year at this time, as a nation, we pause to remember and to honor the life and legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. We typically recall the highlights of his remarkable and all-too-brief career, his leadership of the triumphant Montgomery bus boycott of 1955-56, his climactic speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial during the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, his receipt of the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964, his assassination in Memphis in 1968. Furthermore, typically, we replay the most familiar sentences from his most famous speech, a speech we have all come to know as his I Have a Dream speech. Those words, of course, include the following. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Without a doubt, the achievements that mark the high points of Dr. King's career are extraordinary. And without a doubt, his words on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial on August 22, 1963, are some of the most eloquent uttered by one of the most preeminent orators of his generation, or indeed of any other. But by focusing on the same moments in Dr. King's life, and on a few words from one speech in particular, we paradoxically reduce him to the status of an icon. We do a disservice to his memory, to the movement to which he gave so much, and in the service of which he died, and, in, and to the legacy we seek to honor. For the struggle for freedom and equality preceded and extends beyond what we commonly call the civil rights movement. As he suggests so eloquently in his Nobel acceptance speech, the movement was and is larger than his leadership. And of course, Dr. King was much, much more than these phrases and these moments. To limit him to a few words denies the boldness, the complexities, and the contradictions of his vision for humanity. To freeze Dr. King at these moments of his greatest visibility is to ignore his frailty, his vulnerability, and his transformations. By seizing upon the image of Dr. King at the pinnacle of his success, or at the moment of his martyrdom, we risk allowing him to stand in for the civil rights struggle in its entirety, thereby rendering invisible the less well-known or indeed unknown foot soldiers without whom there would have been no movement. To restrict him to these few representations deprives him of the power to inspire us to action. For if we believe that he was somehow fundamentally and essentially greater than or different from who we are, then we render ourselves unable to follow his example. 
In other words, to limit Dr. King to a few phrases and a few moments makes us complicit with an act of cultural amnesia perpetuated in the name of memorialization. So today I ask us to consider how we commemorate Dr. King not to suggest that we as a nation dispense with such ceremonies and celebrations. Rather, I raise these concerns in order to challenge us to work out the most meaningful way to honor his legacy. I want to suggest that as we remember Dr. King, we commit ourselves to a vision of memory as a critical function. Let us draw inspiration from the drum major instinct sermon. Let us look beyond the prizes and the fanfare and seek to explore the deeper, more profound meanings of his life and his ministry. We might use this occasion to question why certain moments in Dr. King's magnificent body of sermons, speeches, and writings have achieved canonical status while others are all but forgotten. We might seize this as the opportunity to ask whose interests are served when Dr. King is remembered as the champion of a colorblind society and not, for example, as an advocate for the poor or an outspoken opponent of war. Indeed, we might take this opportunity to restore Dr. King's notion of a colorblind society to its original meaning. For Dr. King used the term to refer to a society free of racial subordination. Yet various political leaders and pundits have appropriated the notion to justify their opposition to any interve intervention by the state to eliminate racial subordination. In the spirit of Dr. King's Nobel Prize acceptance speech, we might use this occasion as a time to commit ourselves to learning more about the lesser-known activists associated with the struggle, men and women such as Septima Clark, E.D. Nixon, the Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, Bob Moses, Diane Nash, Ella Baker, Fannie Lou Hamer, Byron Rustin, as well as the many, many others without whom there would have been no movement. Perhaps most importantly, we might commit ourselves to a critical, productive engagement with his words and his actions so that we will be able to make his vision come alive for us as we face the challenges of the present moment. For the poverty, inadequate access to education, employment and health care, discrimination and military aggression against which he struggled are still with us. They may have assumed different forms, but we face them nevertheless. What should we do? What should we do in our daily lives to honor this drum major for justice, for peace, and for righteousness? During his lifetime, Dr. King was often criticized for stepping outside the categories into which others sought to confine him, into which others sought to confine him, his message, and his mission. When, for example, a group of Birmingham clergymen accused him of being an outside agitator, he responded in his 1963 letter from Birmingham jail that, quote, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. When he was criticized for speaking out against the, the Vietnam War and told that peace and civil rights don't mix, he responded in a sermon entitled A Time to Break Silence 
delivered at the Riverside Church in New York City on March 25, 1967, that he, and I quote, that he had a calling beyond national allegiances. To me, he continued, the relationship of this ministry to the making of peace is so obvious that I sometimes marvel at those who ask me why I am speaking against the war. Could it be that they do not know that the good news was meant for all men, for communist and capitalist, for their children and ours, for black and for white, for revolutionary and conservative? Have they forgotten that my ministry is in obedience to the one who loved his enemies so fully that he died for them? What then can I say to the Viet Cong or to Castro or to Mao as a faithful minister of this one? Can I threaten them with death or must I not share with them my life? So as we seek appropriate ways to remember Dr. King, we ought to be certain not to limit him in death as his critics sought to limit him in life. He saw the interconnectedness of diverse struggles against racism, imperialism, and, ec and economic exploitation. Our tributes to him must draw inspiration from that vision. They must enable us to see beyond our local interests and personal investments, and they must require us to recognize our place in the network of mutuality within which we are inescapably placed. The brilliant 2001 film Boycott offers a compelling example of memory as a critical function. And if you haven't already seen this film, I strongly encourage you to make every effort to do so. In Boycott, the director, Clark Johnson, expands our conventional understandings of the Montgomery bus boycott. This film works to disabuse us of the notion that the movement actually began with the boycott by drawing a connection between the segregation of public accommodations and the terror of rural lynch law. It complicates our understanding of the leadership of the movement, the leadership of the boycott, by pointing to the significant roles of figures such as Joanne Gibson Robinson, A.D. Nixon, and Bayard Rustin. Moreover, it captures Dr. King's youth and vulnerability. As you know, at the time the boycott began, he was only uh, 26 years old. So the film captures his youth and vulnerability, thus suggesting to viewers that that he grew into the powerful, charismatic presence we so commonly associate with him. Now, what I find so impressive about Boycott is that it contradicts the notion that memory need be static or fixed. Rather, through its deliberate use of anachronism, it exemplifies how memory can be made pliable, dynamic, active. For example, the film contains a dizzying array of visual images from both earlier and later moments in history that subtly link the boycott to previous and subsequent acts of struggle and resistance. The film incorporates um, a compelling, um, diverse set of musical, musical tracks, rock, hip-hop, gospel, jazz, alternative, music drawn from the 60s through the 90s. And this technique pulls the boycott, helps us pull the boycott out of the safe past in which it has been enshrined. enshrined. This imaginative use of the soundtrack prompts viewers to consider the enduring legacy of the boycott for the present. Now, the film ends with a striking image that dramatizes the kind of critical use of memory to which I've been alluding. 
The closing credits roll over a shot of Dr. King, played by the actor Jeffrey Wright, walking down the street in 21st century Atlanta. Looking somewhat bemused by the people he passes, a young man carrying a boombox, someone else speaking on a cell phone. So it's very sort of funny and wonderful to watch him, his sort of puzzlement at the things we take for granted. Um, so looking somewhat bemused by the people he passes, he stops to speak with a group of young African-American men. A police car approaches and slows, the driver slows to check out this group. The two officers, a Latina and an African-American man, wait wave somewhat ambiguously at King and at his associates before they drive on. Now, at one level, this final scene would seem to evoke a powerful, nostalgic longing for the martyred King. It might seem to prompt us to wonder how different the world would be if Dr. King were still here. But I believe that something else is going on in this scene. I believe that this final scene is meant to inspire us to reflect upon the politics of the act of remembering. The exchange of glances between the officers and the black men on the street conjures up the familiar iconography of the tense relationship between the police and African-American communities. In the context of a film about the end of Jim Crow seating on buses in Montgomery, this closing image links the protocols of segregation to the violence and terror communities of color continue to associate with law enforcement and the criminal justice system. This gesture positions the boycott and, by extension, the civil rights movement within a broader history of oppression and resistance. The deliberately anachronistic shot of King speaking to the young man on the corner might thus be read as a figure for the possibility of a critical dialogue between the examples of history and the exigencies of the contemporary cultural and political scene. I want to close my remarks this afternoon with a passage from the end of King's Nobel Prize speech, a passage that I think speaks powerfully to our present moment. For even as he honors the men and women with whom he struggled so tirelessly in the movement, he denounces military aggression and articulates a vision of global peace. I refuse to accept the cynical notion that nation after nation must spiral down a militaristic stairway into a hell of, therm of thermonuclear destruction. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. That is why right temporarily defeated is stronger than evil triumphant. I believe that even amid today's mortar bursts and whining bullets, there is still hope for a brighter tomorrow. I believe that wounded justice, lying prostrate on the blood-flowing streets of our nations, can be lifted from this dust of shame to reign supreme among the children of men. I have the audacity to believe that peoples everywhere can have three meals a day for their bodies, education and culture for their minds, and dignity, equality, and freedom for their spirits. I believe that what self-centered men have torn down, men other-centered can build up. This faith can give us courage to face the uncertainties of the future. It will give our tired feet new strength as we continue our forward stride toward the city of freedom. 
When our days become dreary with low hovering clouds and our nights become darker than a thousand midnights, we will know that we are living in the creative turmoil of a genuine civilization struggling to be born. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Smith, for a powerful testimony about the importance and the, of memory as we go forward. I'd also like to take this opportunity to congratulate again all of our winners of the poster, essay, and video contests. I want to thank President Tillman for her leadership and her presence here today. Thanks again to Valerie Smith for giving us such an inspiring talk this afternoon. I want to thank the Princeton University Gospel Ensemble for sharing their musical talents with us. And I especially want to thank each and every one of you for coming this afternoon. And in order to speed us on our journey and to give us strength for the next days to come, I'd like to welcome the Gospel Ensemble again, who will favor us with the anthem of the Civil Rights Movement, We Shall Overcome. Thank you again for coming.